All right. That was truly, uh, truly inspiring and amazing. Thank you so much to the team that um, has uh, getting back together as we're trying to, to bring our worship to a, to a new place. And uh, we're really excited to see the work that they have done. So, that being said, uh, we're going to turn in our Bibles to the book of Daniel. And we are going to begin, uh, so we're going to begin the final, the begin, uh, to look at the, uh, the beginning of the end, if you will, or the end of the beginning, however you want to look at it. Um, Daniel, the final uh, three chapters um, are some of the most interesting chapters, including chapter 10. Um, and I, I guess maybe I say that every week, but um, the truth is that every, every chapter in God's Word is amazing. Um, and every chapter is something that's worth reading and, and paying attention to. But this particular chapter is one of my favorites. Um, it's often overlooked by preachers because um, it's sort of a little controversial. It's something that's a little, um, just a little different, right? Um, it's a uh, it's a passage that it's it. As we read through this, you're going to see there's there's some areas here that really leave us with some more questions at times than we do answers. Um, and so we're sort of looking at Daniel now in this time, and and we're trying to figure out where we're going to be going with this. And um, so just so you guys get an idea, sort of give you a, a foretaste, the last three chapters. Um, they're, they're a complete unit. It's actually one vision, and then the expl explanation of those visions, um, the one vision that, that Daniel has given us, um, is probably the most complete and concise vision we have of the um, of the impending Greek invasion that, that is going to come in and destroy the Persian Empire much after uh, Daniel's death. It's also um, a look into the final days of Israel. Um, it's something that's pretty powerful. So Daniel uh, chapter 10 is really really a prep, uh, a prep, a preparation for the vision, right? For the, the understanding that's going to come. And then uh, chapter 11 is the actual vision as it's unfolding. And the final chapter in the book of Daniel is like final instructions. It's the, the final words that Daniel is given before he ends his book. And so that's kind of uh, sort of lays out the next three chapters. We're in that part where we have that preparation for the vision. Uh, we don't actually get any clarity in the vision, we just know that it's about to happen. Daniel has his encounter with Jesus, he has his encounter with the angel, and then he is prepped and strengthened for the vision that's about to be um, explained to him. Uh, so that's kind of the, the, the plan as we move forward, as we start looking at this. Um, I'm going to read the entirety of the first uh, the chapter 10, and then we're going to sort of come back into it, start from the first verse and sort of work through it as best we can. So... That being said, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to Daniel chapter 10 as we begin this, um, the beginning, the end of the beginning, if you will, or the beginning of the end of uh, Daniel's book. So in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. And the message was true and one of great conflict, but he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. On the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. 
And his body was also like burrow, and his face the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like the flaming were like flaming torches. His arm and feet were like gleaming polished bronze, and the sound of his words were the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this I was left alone and saw this great vision. Yet one, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color had turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. And I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face. Where is that at? So as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face on the ground. And then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees and said to me, O oh, Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you and stand upright, for I have, not, I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word uh, to me, I stood up trembling. And he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the king, kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for, for 21 days. And then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Uh, now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. And when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face towards the ground and became speechless. And behold, one who resembled a human being was, was touching my lips, and I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O oh my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can such a servant of my Lord talk with such, um, with, with such as my Lord? For as for me, there remains now, just now, no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. Then this one with human appearance, touched me again and strengthened me and said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you and take courage and be courageous. For now, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength. May the Lord speak, uh, for you have strengthened me. And then he said, do, not under, uh, do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth. Behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly against these forces except Michael, your prince. Now I want to just uh, uh, move back to the beginning of this as we start to try to break this down. Obviously, as we said before in, in studying any kind of scripture or prophecy or anything, that there are always three aspects of scripture that we want to look at. The first is always the historical component. Um, there's always something of historical note because this Bible was written um, and, and sealed and finished uh, almost a little less than 2,000, well, a little less than 2,000 years ago. And so... Um, the canon of scripture from, from Genesis to Revelation was finished and sealed at that time. And so without having any new written work, this is, this is what we have. And so everything in here has a historical component because it was written in our history. 
Um, now, the second part of this is that we always should look at is a, is, a, is a spiritual component. Everything that we read in Scripture, it may not always be the single verse, but obviously in blocks of verses and, and whole chapters as we go forward, um, everything has a spiritual context that we can um, use and apply to ourselves spiritually. And then the final and third component would be, um, that final component would be um, a, a practical uh, context because every passage and, and and complete thought in scripture has a practical component for us to be able to to work with so in light of that um, we need to look at the beginning just the historical part of this now we're looking at we need to understand this is the really the final vision of Daniel it happened about 535 BC we know that happened we know it happened in the first um, first month of their year um, it says the 24th day of the first month that first month is the month of Nisan in in the Hebrew, and it happened around uh, April, um, May time period, maybe March a little bit. It changes because um, our calendar goes by the sun, whereas the Jewish calendar was always a, uh, a lunar calendar, so it changes a little bit. And that was the beginning of their year, was was that point. It was also the time that the nation of Israel would begin their their spring feasts, and they would have that Passover as one of the one of the spring feasts. And this particular fast that Daniel is doing would have coincided around the beginning of that. He said he was fasting for uh, 21 days and if you look at the time span it would have covered the time of Passover that he was fasting. And so obviously Daniel was fasting. He was he was mourning. Um, he says that uh, he talks about in the very first verse um, he explains who he is and he talks about this message being true and one of a great conflict. Now this is, it starts right off with controversy. It's interesting that the word conflict um, that we have translated the New American Standard is, is uh, um, uh, the same word that is um, is such a conflict uh, to those translators in the King James version it says one, it says a time of long service um, but that's really not a good translation of this particular passage in fact uh, the word there is saba in Hebrew, and it it almost entirely means, um, in, in fact, almost every time it's used in the Old Testament and in this context, especially when you look at the context of the vision that he's already had and the vision that he's about to receive. Of course, Daniel is not writing this down when it's happening. He's writing this down after the fact. And so this could only mean a great war or a great conflict, that coming great war that's going to be in the future. Now, the funny thing, Thing, and, the, and the interesting thing is in the context of this, it can either mean a great spiritual battle that's been ongoing since who knows when and will culminate in the pages of Revelation that Daniel had not yet been privy to, but that we have. Or it could mean it could mean just a great war that's going to take place between um, human armies. Now we don't know. It could be either one. There's a tension there. It could be both. That's the beauty of some of these, past, some of these uh, uh, future prophetic events is we're not always given the full answers. Now we see that Daniel says in those days he was mourning. Um, that word mourning is a word that's often used for fasting um, and great sadness. It's the same word that Nehemiah used in chapter 1 of his book in verse 4 when he was in mourning over Israel. And I find it interesting that it's the same basic word that's being used in Hebrew because um, we need to ask ourselves why. Why was Daniel in mourning? Was, was something happening? Did something take place? Well this is where that historical component comes in. If you don't really have a good understanding of Daniel's circumstances and Daniel's history as, as it pertains, you have to know that Daniel, at this point in his life, was 
85 years old, okay, 85 years old-ish. He might have been 86, he might have been 84, but he was right there in his mid-80s, right? That's a long time for anyone, anyone to walk this earth. And so during this time, it would have also coincided with the, um, around the same time that the, that the lion's den um, incident happened in Daniel's life. Now, it could have happened before the lion's den, it could have happened after. We're not really sure, we're not given that context because we don't have an exact date of when the lion's den happened, like we have an exact date for this this particular passage. But he was in mourning. Why was he in mourning? Well, he was in mourning probably because around this time was when uh, the children of Israel had already been released for a couple years now to go back into into Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And if you know from the reading and studying the book of Ezra, which is all about the rebuilding of the temple, you know that they hit a snag right in the beginning. They got there, and within a year or so, um, the work to rebuild the temple had come to a, to, to a screeching halt. It had stopped because the Samaritans and the other individuals that were not the friends of God's people were doing everything they can to stop the rebuilding of the temple because they did not want... Uh, God's house to be rebuilt. They didn't want the temple worship to begin. Um, there were a lot of issues that they had with that. and Their reasoning was their own, but obviously they were being controlled and manipulated by the enemy of all mankind, which is uh, Satan himself. And so... There was this, um, there was that historical com component that was after, that was sort of going there. And it's quite probable that Daniel, being that he was um, pretty high up in the government and working his, uh, working still, even in his 85th year, for, uh, for, uh, the nation that had, that he had been working most, almost his entire life for. And, uh, he was, he obviously had gotten word that there was issues with, uh, what was happening in Jerusalem and God's house. Now Daniel knew he probably would never make there due to his age and due to um, just his own um, uh, needs to be a worker in the government. He probably even felt that even if he could stand the journey back home that he, he would be better suited and better served. Um, he could better serve his people by staying uh, in the government and working as he did. Um, whatever Daniel's motivations for staying and not going back to Jerusalem are his own. Uh, but you need to know that that was happening. Now verse 3 happened and verse 3 is sort of a, um, a description of his fast. This is one of those times where I just encourage everybody to look at this. This is a particular fast that I coincidentally call the Daniel fast. Um, it's a fast that's, that's a little different than what you would think. Now obviously fasting means that we're denying ourselves something. Um, typically when you say you're fasting, most of the time we understand that fasting is um, something we, we, we stop food, right? We stop something that is enjoyable enjoyable to us. Food is something that all of us need to have, and it's not easy to fast. But the reality is, is that Scripture talks about fasting all through the Old and the New Testament. Jesus himself was accused of, of, of his disciples not fasting, and he said, look, there's no reason why uh, the friends of the bridegroom are going to fast while the bridegroom is here. They'll have their time of fasting and mourning once he's gone, but right now, it's time to enjoy his presence. He was referring to himself as being uh, the Son of God, and that while he was among the apostles, their job was not to mourn or to fast. Their, their, their time was to enjoy him because the fasting would come. Scripture doesn't say if we fast, it's when we fast. Um, the Jews were commanded to fast once a year. Every year, at least one time a year. That was the commandment that had been given to them in, Le in Levitical law. And so we have that happening. And Daniel says that he was fast. He was a limited fast. 
And so I know some of you say, well, uh, well, Pastor, I can't stop eating. I can't, my body just won't let me do that. I'm diabetic or I have this you know, medical condition or another or whatever the reasoning behind it is. Um, obviously, fasting isn't something you should do lightly. It's something you shouldn't do unless you have uh, spoken with uh, a medical professional um, and, and seriously thought and prayed about it before you begin a fast. But I think it's important to, to know that, that not every fast has to be an abstinence of all food. As an avid faster, I fast all the time. Um, sometimes I fast without food. Sometimes I do a limited fast like this, where um, you don't take in some of the things that you enjoy. And look at what he what he what he chooses to fast. He doesn't eat anything tasty. So no desserts. Desserts are off the, off the menu. He says no meat and no wine. And so anything that was tasty. So many uh, theologians have said he was probably on a bread and water diet. Well, that doesn't specifically say that here. I'm not encouraging anyone to do that. But he obviously was foregoing the pleasures that were afforded to him in his position as somebody who was highly involved in the government where he would have and could have had he chosen to eat well but he chose and said not to so he pulled back on his on his choice of food he also did not anoint himself um, for during that time now uh, back in those days it was common for people of high station to anoint themselves with oil to make themselves look good and smell fragrant it was part of their their grooming process some theologians have gone so far as to say that he didn't bathe or do anything else during that time period. We don't have that um, in stone. Um, they're just taking that as an inference when he said that he didn't anoint himself. But I think part of it was he wanted that mourning to take place. And, and I think the other part of it was he was 85 years old. And um, going without food for 21 days, being that old, I don't know if his body could have handled it. And um, we can get into a lot of discussion about this, but he gives us an example of what it means to fast in that partial way. It says on the 24th day of the first month, he was at the bank of the great river. People have asked why he was there. Some have said that maybe he was there because he was, as an official of the state, he was uh, moving out. But at 85 years old, I don't think that Daniel was doing a whole lot of moving from country to country. I think um, in this particular uh, scenario, he was probably about 40, 50 miles away from the palace that he would normally serve in. I think Daniel was taking a uh, sabbatical rest. He was taking a break as he was pulling back during this time of, of, of fasting and mourning and prayer, as he was seeking to uh, find the will of God, as he was praying for his people, as he was praying for um, uh, the situation in Jerusalem. This was something that Daniel was obviously keen to do because we saw that in the last uh, chapter, chapter 9, where in the very beginning of that he was praying diligently for um, his people and he was praying for the sins of his nation. And most theologians agree that he was, um, he had pulled himself out of the political and, and um, uh, uh, machinations in the working of the palace. Um, this may have been directly after the uh, lion's den incident when he just wanted a break. Uh, who knows? It may have been right before. We don't know. Um, but either way, he pulled himself back and he was having this time of, uh, of uh, to be alone with God. Now, obviously, somebody at that great station wouldn't ever be alone. They would always have guards. They would always have people around him uh, to take care of his needs. He was um, pretty high up in the government. And so we see that uh, in verse 5, he talks about looking up and, and into the heavens. And behold, there was this man dressed in linen. The word look there in the Hebrew denotes a... a an excitement, a thrill that just, you know, shot through him. 
And so this is, remember now, this is the time of the Passover, the time where they would remember the rescue and the redemption of Israel from Egypt. And this is all on his mind as he is sitting here going through this, uh, this time of fasting. And then he sees this image. Now this is where it gets a little odd, right? And now most preachers, we love to preach about Daniel in the lion's den. We love to preach about um, the three, uh, three Hebrew boys that were thrown in the fiery furnace. We love to preach about those, those things in the book of Daniel because they're clear and concise and it's straightforward and everybody loves it and, it's, and it has a clear, um, a clear message. You know, stand firm for our God and he will reward you. Uh, and so that's, those are the things that lots of preachers like to preach. This next part is something that very few preachers enjoy preaching because it's, it's filled with controversy. It's filled with questions. It leaves us wanting more but not getting more, right? And so this is where we are as we look at this. He says, he, he looked up and he saw, behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist had a belt of gold. His body was like the, shone like burl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes like the flaming torches. His arms and feet gleamed in the polished bronze. The sound of his words was like the sound of a trumpet or a tumult. This is a vision. This is a vision, right? This is what just totally ripped him apart. You get a reminiscent of, of, of an Isaiah chapter 6 moment where Isaiah is transported into the throne room of God. He gets this beautiful and powerful and amazing visage and he just says, Woe unto me, I am undone. This is the same thing that's happening to Daniel. Now this is a question though that everybody asks is who is this man in linen, right? Is this an angel? Is this Gabriel? Or is this, is this God or, or, or something else? Now I'm going to tell you that there are... There are good arguments on either side. There's good arguments to say that this was God. This is also um, good arguments to say that this was an angel that was coming and delivering the message and that this was, this was the angel, potentially Gabriel, who was about to deliver this message. Now, I'm going to say that because there are good arguments. And you're going to have your opinions either way. I'm going to give you my opinion and the opinion that I think is, um, it best fits the, the passage that we have and has the most support from the most... Um, uh, uh, how do we say uh, uh, the most theologians and the most commentaries throughout the history of of, of, the, of commentating and so this is my opinion this is also the opinion of other folks too is that this individual was a pre-incarnate form of Jesus Christ um, that this was because and the reason why I say that is because this, the images are similar to the, the vision that we have in Isaiah the visions that we have in Ezekiel chapter 1 and the visions that we have of God and, and Jesus in Revelation chapter uh, 1 verses 12 through 16 so this is a, in my opinion, this is the very image that we're seeing of the pre-incarnate, uh, powerful Lord of the universe. This is, in my opinion, a pre-incarnate form of Jesus Christ. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, theologians have a name for that. We call that a theophany, right? It's a visitation of God. More specifically, Christian theologians call this a Christophany, and that is a, 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 an appearance of Jesus before he came in the manger that we talked about this morning at the Advent, um, in the Advent candles. 
the idea here is that this is the image that we have of a mighty, powerful man. Um, and all of these images that he captures actually play to that um, sense of royalty and understanding of who he is. And so we see that right in the beginning. It says he's dressed in linen. Now, if you know who Jesus is, you know that he is our high priest. The book of Hebrews goes greatly into that. The thing about linen is linen is always uh, worn by the priests before and while they're doing their priestly duty in the temples. It also represents white and purity. So somebody that would that would uh, wear this would be somebody who would represent purity. Now, you say, well, that could be an angel. Could it? This is a good question that we need to ask ourselves. And we need to take a moment just to pause and talk a moment about angels because angels are referenced here. We're going to talk about them in a few minutes. And we're talking about a difference between what an angel is and what a pre-incarnate form of Jesus would look like. And so I think it's important we understand that because the thing we have to remember is that there is only one uncreated uh, being in the universe. There's only one, and that's God, the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one, the Trinity. I don't understand it. I can only give you that answer. There is only one uncreated being in all of the universe. Everything else and everyone else is created, right? So a creation is different than a creator. We know, because we've read the end of the book, there are angelic forces that are part of this spiritual realm that are not perfect. And there's something I want to remind you guys is, is that we also know that there's no perfect human. And I want you to, to think about this, and I want to maybe challenge some of your assumptions, and maybe some of you out there actually believe that, that angels can be perfect. But I'm here to tell you that angels are no more perfect than anyone else. There's only one perfect being in the universe, and that's the only one that's uncreated. That is God himself. He is the only perfect creature. Everything else is a created being that, is, that, has, that has the potential and is not always perfect. And so to ascribe purity to an angel is something I think that, would, that any angel that was truly a representative of God would, um, would take umbrage against. So we're talking about a priestly linen that is there. We also are talking about a, a belt of gold. This belt always and, and most of the time represents royalty and it represents the kingly status. And we know Jesus was our high priest, but he's also the king, right? And then um, following right on that, you see that it says his um, body was like burl and his face had the appearance of lightning. That burl um, was a, you know, again, we don't really know exactly what this word means. Um, it's translated in a variety of different ways in the, New in the Old Testament. Um, it's sometimes uh, translated as, as topaz or um, a chrysolite or um, a burl. It's like a yellow goldish colored stone. Um, the actual meaning is kind of unknown, but it gives the representation of shining, right? And so the one thing that we know about God is that he always comes with what we call the Shekinah glory of God. And this Shekinah radiance, this glory that radiates out of the living God, this is that representation of the divine. And this is another reason why I think we're talking here about um, not just an angel but a divine being and there's only one divine being and that's that's God right and we know that when God shows up here on the earth um, it's it's always Jesus right he's the one that that we get to interact with face to face and um, and we see that here in this case it talks about his eyes were like flaming torches right after it gets the face that had the appearance of lightning lightning is also always a representation of the divine and so 
um, I think that the burrow and the lightning combined together with that shining Shekinah glory that is representative of glory of God. And then it moves into his eyes, right? Because he's the king, because he's the high priest, because he's the divine um, uh, king of kings, lord of lords, and, 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 and creator of all that is, because of all three of those things, he has eyes like flaming torches. That means that is a symbol in the Old Testament of the ability to cast judgment. The eyes are, the, are always the flaming of source of judgment. The fact that they are flaming there means that, that he has the right and the ability to judge. And then then it goes on to his arms and his feet. Notice that it says they gleam like polished bronze. The idea there is that the arms and the feet are the, the, the uh, mechanisms that God uses to employ his judgment. Right? He has the ability and the right to judge and he is going to be able to exercise that judgment when he sees fit. And that's what those arms sort of represent. And so all that combines into this powerful image, but it doesn't end there. It talks about his voice that is the sound of like a great tumult. You say, well, what does that mean? I have no idea, right? I have no clue. Maybe you guys do, but for me, I haven't got a clue what, uh, that, what that means. Other than this, that the only other time that we see the King of Glory that's represented as the Son of God coming in power, coming in authority with lightning and, and, and purity and everything else is in that final battle of, of Armageddon when he shows up. And the Bible says he opens his mouth and like a sword comes out and just destroys things, right? The sound of thunder made incarnate, I guess you could say. It's the most powerful voice the universe has ever known. It was the voice that sang creation into existence to begin with. It's the voice that we all long to hear. It's that same voice that the only way that, that um, Elijah could handle it was in a still small way as he was seeking the face of God. Because if he had just, if he had just stood there and spoke in a normal voice, more than likely it would have destroyed him. Like it almost destroyed Daniel. Like it almost destroyed Isaiah all those many years ago. And so we see that 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 understanding there with the, the voice of a tumult. And that's where the that's where the vision is sort of ends. That's that voice of tumult. The idea here in the way it's written in the language is that this is where the this is where the, 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 the vision and the and the words are being given to Daniel about what's gonna happen, right? This is the vision. And everything that is said from that voice, we know it's true because he says that it's true. But he, he's, he, he's, he's, he's speaking this because the ultimate source of truth is Jesus himself. And so we know these are the words of Jesus that come through this, right? And so all that lays it right there on Daniel. And Daniel says, I'm done. I am undone. Just like Isaiah. He is completely undone. He doesn't know what to do. He's surrounded by his, by his servants, the people that were with him. And they fled. They were in great dread. And you say, well, well, that's kind of weird. Well, yeah, it was also kind of weird when the same thing happened to Paul in the book of in the book of Acts, chapter nine, when when he was on the road to Damascus on the way to slay some Christians, and God just came to him like you know out of the blue, and just bang, took his eyesight from him, and he knew beyond a shadow of doubt that he was in the presence of of, of God Himself, and uh, he knew he knew that he had been <laughs> he'd been making a mistake, but everybody else ran away too, and so we see that that happening, and then he see he's left alone, and he saw this great vision. He has the vision. He has the words, and the strength left me. Everything about me was undone, just like in Isaiah. He fell on the ground. He had no strength. He was basically dead in all its, in, in every way, shape, or form. Um, 
Now, does that mean his heart stopped beating and his brain stopped firing? I can't tell you that. He just says that he was like, he had no strength. He was basically dead. And he fell on the ground. And the only way he was able to get up was um, he was lifted up by an angel. Now, look what it says in verse 9. He says, I heard the sound of the words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. This is a really interesting um, expression, obviously expression of, uh, uh, of worship. An expression of uh, of of deep, deep personal connection with God the Father. Right? Um, it's something that we don't see very often. The only other time that this phrase is used really is in the Old Testament in Genesis um, when God caused a great sleep to fall on Adam, and that's where He created Eve out of the side of Adam. And so. This is kind of a unique phrase that's used, but I also want to notice something. I want you to notice something is that that he was he fell with his face on the ground. There is a lot of talk, especially in the theological world and in more of the charismatic churches, about the idea of being slain in the spirit. Now, this isn't a uh, this isn't a, a commentary a commentary on on for or against the uh, charismatic movement. This isn't a, um, a, a any one of those things. I'm not trying to come down to any brothers and sisters that feel like they've had an experience and encounter with the living God. That's, that's between you and Jesus, and I'm not going to take that take away from it. But I will say this, that every time, and I maybe I'm wrong, and, and if I am, you, if you can find a place in Scripture where I'm wrong, I will stand corrected. But in my study over the years, I have never found a single place in Scripture where a child of God, a servant of God, was knocked on their back. They always fall on their face in worship to God. The enemies of God are always knocked backwards. But the servants of God are always driven forward in an act of supplication to the Master. And so just think about that as Daniel is giving that. I'm not going to go any further. I'll leave that to your own, uh, to your own thing. Verse 10 is when, it gets, um, is when the vision is over with now. And now the angel appears, and the angel gives the interpretation. And behold, a hand touched me and set, and set me trembling on my hands and knees. O Daniel, he said to me, man of high esteem, understanding the words I'm about to tell you, and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you in spoken word. Um, when, he spoke, when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Now, at this point, you can say, well, is the person that's talking to Daniel the one that actually... Um, woke him up from this, this deep sleep or was it an angel? I believe personally just in the context and the way that's writing, the style and the genre that we, that the vision that he had was of Jesus speaking and now this is the angel interpreting and it's pretty consistent. Now you say, what angel is this? We don't know. Um, many theologians, myself included, believe this was Gabriel. He didn't feel a need to uh, give a name and so it could be a different angel but since um, the only angel other than Michael that's mentioned in this book is Gabriel, and Gabriel was always the one that gives a message from or for or about the Messiah, we can only conclude that this was more than likely Gabriel, but we can't stand um, on any uh, solid ground on that because we just don't know. It, in my opinion, is an angel, and in my opinion, it is probably Gabriel. Now that being said, he says to him, look, I want you to stand up. I want you to know a little bit about what's going on. Verse 12 gives him that 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 that, that uh, information about what's happening, right? And so Daniel says, uh, he says to me, um, he stands up trembling, he turns to the angel, and the angel says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Because the moment you started praying, Daniel, I left from the gate of the courts of heaven to bring you the answer, right? But in the midst of all that, some things happened. 
I was unable to bring, him, bring all this, uh, this information to you because I got caught up in a battle that's being waged. But the important thing we need to remember here is that the very moment that Daniel started his prayer and his fast, 21 days before he got the answer, the answer had already been sent, right? Now we know that God could have just simply said, hey Daniel, I appreciate what you had to say, here's the answer. But he didn't choose to do that. And I don't know why God chose to wait and delay 21 days and allow the messenger to go from heaven through the angel to, uh, to Daniel to give him uh, an, an answer to this. I don't have that answer for you. I wish I did. Uh, all I can say is, is that that's what happened, right? And so, um, we also know a few, another thing. Verse, verse 13 says that the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for these 21 days. He was fighting. And in the midst of all that, he was fighting to a standstill. He was in a battle, um, a spiritual battle, that's being fought in a realm that we humans cannot see. And you say, well, is such a thing exist? Well, if, he, if, if you have never read it in the book of Genesis, um, if you've never experienced uh, the book of Kings, if you've never um, read anything else about any other angels, I encourage you to do a study on that. Um, it's an amazing study to write down all the things the Bible says about angels and all the times they show, they show up. Angels are all throughout the Old Testament. They're a single angel passed over the entire nation of Egypt and killed every firstborn um, in one evening. Uh, pretty powerful beings, right? Angels can be pretty tough. Um, angels have showed up in great numbers. Uh, my favorite, one of my favorite stories is the prophet Elisha, who was a, a thorn in the flesh of one of the kings. And the king sent an army to go after, uh, uh, go after Elisha, the prophet. And uh, he, he comes out that morning and he, he prays over his servant who was scared to death because of the army that was there. And he said, God, God just show him what, what this army's up against, right? And then the eyes of the servant were opened and he sees all of the angels that were around the army that was around them. And that army was struck blind um, at that moment. And so, obviously, these angels are powerful, right? And they're part of it. And there's a battle going on. And the thing that we can take, about, uh, take away from verse 13 is that there is a battle that's happening. The way that this is written, this, um, the, the, this visitation, it implies that there's an ongoing battle. This message, this battle didn't start up just because Satan didn't want Daniel to have the um, to have this message. Satan didn't know that Daniel was going to have a vision. That vision was strictly for Daniel and Daniel alone that came by, came by way of Jesus Christ. Jesus had a, had a plan for Daniel, but, uh, but that doesn't mean that, that Satan knew what that was. And that implies a level of, of understanding and cognition that would be on the level of divine status to the enemy that is not divine. And so we need to understand that right up front, is that just like Gabriel didn't have complete knowledge, he did have a message, he also was fighting a battle. And it seems to indicate that there's an ongoing battle that happens. It's my personal opinion and belief based upon my study of Scripture, and I hope you guys have studied this well, there's a battle that's being waged all the time. There's a spiritual battle that's taking place, and there are strongholds and principalities. We're going to get to that near the end of the sermon, but I want you to look at something, what it says here, the prince of Persia. We know that's not a man, because no man could stand up to the power of an angel. A single angel can wipe out entire armies. A single angel took out over 100,000 soldiers that were uh, of Sennacherib that was that was camped outside of Jerusalem making fun of the living God in one night. So you can't tell me that a single prince of anywhere that wasn't uh, an, an, an angelic being could in any way hinder um, an angel that was set on a mission from God. This was an ongoing battle that seems, in my opinion, to be taking place all the time. I've been in dark places around the world. And, and it's amazing to me the strongholds that, 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 that are there. And it's my opinion, based upon reading Ephesians and other areas in, in, in Scripture, 
Scripture that there are, there are strongholds that are controlled by powers and principalities and, and rulers that are angelic in, in nature. Now, I don't have a full understanding of this, and I don't know if any of us ever will, but I'm going to do my best to try to give this to you. If you want to study more about it, I've mentioned this book numerous times from the pulpit. It's a great book. It's, it's called The Unseen Kingdom uh, by uh, Dr. Michael Hesher. Um, definitely a great book. Definitely deals with these, this issue. It deals with um, discussion in, in Job. It deals with the other areas in Scripture where angels are mentioned and referenced. So I encourage you to read on your own about that. Um, but obviously there's a, there's a battle that's being taken place. And then we get on the name, the only other name besides Lucifer and Gabriel that we have of angels in Scripture, and that is Michael, who is called the chief prince. Now, a lot of people like to say there are three archangels. There's Lucifer, who fell. There's Gabriel, who's an archangel, who's mentioned in this book and also in the New Testament. And there's Michael, the archangel. But the reality is, is that there's only one angel that's given the title archangel, the chief of princes, um, the c captain of the host, whatever you want to call him, and that's Michael. We don't know any of, the, any of the other angels and what they were. We don't know why Michael was given archangel, or this title of archangel, and that uh, Lucifer was given the title of cherubim, or cherub, uh, in uh, some of the passages that describe him in Isaiah and in Ezekiel. Um, but either way, we know that uh, Michael was one of the chief princes. He came, stood in the place of uh, Gabriel because Gabriel needed to get through with this, with this message. And then he says, I've come to give you this message. I've come to, to deliver this, this information to you, right? Um, and he says something that's just amazing. He says in verse 19, he says, you are a man of high esteem in the courts of heaven, right? That is greatly beloved. We talked about that last week. That title, it's only given to a few people, actually two, as far as we know, in the New and Old Testament. Um, one of them is John, and one of them is Daniel. John, the revelator, um, who is known as, as greatly beloved, and one whom Jesus loved, was gifted with the privilege of being able to bring um, the book of Revelation to us, that apocalyptic vision of end times. And the same man in the Old Testament, a similar man in the Old Testament, Daniel, who was also called greatly beloved, was given a similar apocalyptic vision of the future. And so we see that. And we know that he's still, he's still struggling. He's still undone. He even refer, replies to the angel. He says, how can, I, how can I do this? How can I, a human being, how can I even begin to mention this? You notice that there was a touching of his lips. We saw the same scene played out in Isaiah. I have no doubt that the image that was, caught was that were created here that Daniel was, was experiencing immediately brought him back into, that, into the passage in Isaiah because we know that he read from the, the prophet Isaiah and, and no doubt that he read this vision, never assuming, never presuming that he would also have a same type of vision that, that Isaiah had. And, he, and obviously the, the, the angel is telling him, look, um, this message comes to you. But he's, he's saying, basically, I'm undone. I can't do this. I, can't, I don't have the strength in me to do this. And so that's when that angel touched him again and gave him the strength. And he was able to reply. He goes, okay, I've got the strength. In the end of verse 19, I can receive the words that you have um, to give me. But look what it says. It says, be at peace. Take courage and be courageous. These are the commands that are given to the prophet Daniel. And when these words spoke to him, he was strengthened and encouraged and empowered. And then he said, do you understand why I came to you? 
then he has a, a curious thing that he says after this. He says, but I shall have to relieve you in a few minutes after I'm done giving you this message because I have to go back and fight with Michael at my side against the prince of Persia because the prince of Greece is coming. This is the part that gets a little interesting. And this is the part that I think that we need to look at because I believe just as then and just as now that there are evil forces empowered by Satan that have dominion over certain parts of this planet. When Jesus was going through his temptation in the desert, one of the temptations that Satan gave to him was, worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms. Now that could not have been a temptation unless it was a reality. Unless Satan did not have sway over all those kingdoms. In fact, he's referred to in the New Testament as the prince and the power of the air. The ruler of this present age. It, that's the, those are the names of, of our enemy, right? It wouldn't have been a temptation to Jesus if it wasn't real. Notice too that Jesus didn't dispute his current stewardship. That means Satan's stewardship over the nations. That's not to say that God doesn't have ultimate authority because while he might be called the prince and the power of the air, Jesus is the king and the creator of all the universe and he has the power and authority high above anything. What, what, and what Satan was trying to do was give him a pathway around the cross and Jesus knew he couldn't. He had to go through the cross because our salvation was preeminent. But he says here he has to go back and fight and there was two other angelic strongholds that were going to come against us. So the, the question then begins, well, if there's a prince of Greece and a prince of Tyre, does that mean there's a prince of the United States? Probably. Probably. Is he evil? Probably. What does that mean for us? It means that we are ultimately citizens of one, one nation and that's not the United States. We're citizens of the nation of God, the kingdom of God. And so if we are followers of the living God, that's who we are. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Now that being said, obviously there's a battle being waged. And it's important for us to know that our prayer matters. Our prayer affects things. Now, uh, to, to really emphasize this and to bring this into understanding, because remember, we're talking about every passage has historical, spiritual context. We've talked about the historical. We've said the spiritual. There's, a spiritual. there's a spiritual battle taking place right now. And let me tell you something. The enemy is Satan. And the Bible describes him as a roaring lion, roaming around the earth, seeking who he may destroy. He is one who is a liar. He is the serpent of old. He is the one who is the beginner and the beginning and the end of, of, of murder, death, destruction. He has only one goal in our heart, in our life, and that is to destroy us. He does not want to seek our benefit or our, our blessing. He only wants to destroy. That's all he wants to do. Destroy everything and anything of God. And let me tell you, that's his, that's his thrust, that's his main goal, but we are not powerless. This is not a sermon about the greatness of Satan and his power, but it, it is powerful. And those of you that, that, that believe that Satan has no power, you're wrong. He does. He's incredibly powerful, but he is not the most powerful. Because the Bible says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. But for the majority of creation, aside from the 2,000 block period from the death of Jesus Christ till now, Satan has had almost complete free reign in the world. You say, well, how can you say that? I can tell you this because if you read the Old Testament, you, you know that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, did not actively work 
all the time in the history of the world. He came and went. He touched. He embodied. He was a laser focus in times of need. But as far as we know, as far as Scripture talks about, there was no mass outpouring of the Spirit of God. The prophets all talked about that happening, and we know that happened on the day of Pentecost. Jesus himself said, I'm leaving, I'm giving you all authority, and I'm giving you the greatest gift you can possibly ever have, the one gift you're going to need to be able to massively move through the next part of, the, of, your, of your existence, and that is I'm giving you the gift of the Holy Spirit. Read it, it's in the New Testament. So that's the gift that we had, and we know that there's going to come a day, and the prophecies talked about this in chapter 9 and, and on in chapter 11 and 12, about this rapture and the calling out of the Gentile church, and, and the Spirit of God with us will, will leave, and we'll see it, the earth devolve into one of the most terrible times the, the universe has ever seen. It's a world without a strong Christian influence. And God is again going to turn his sights to the nation of Israel and they will be his instruments as he seeks to redeem those final people during the tribulation. You say, Pastor, where is that at? Read the book of Revelation. It's all there, right? But we're not, it's not a sermon about Revelation. It's not a sermon about that. But I want to turn in the final part of this sermon because we talked about uh, historical, we talked about spiritual, now we want to get to practical. Let's go to the New Testament see what, what the prophet or the apostle Paul has to say about this. Let's look in the book of Ephesians in the final chapter, in chapter 6. A lot of you guys know chapter 6. We've referenced it before about the, um, uh, about the armor of God, right? Because we know that the armor is something that is powerful. And it's something that, that, um, that Daniel, or not Daniel, but um, that Paul uh, relied on every day. Look what it says in chapter 6 in the book of Ephesians. It says, finally, starting in verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God. He actually says that twice. Put on the full armor of God. Must have been important because he, he, he repeated himself. So that you'll be able to stand firm against the wiles or the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And here it is. But against rulers, against powers, against world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. He's saying basically our fight is not with man, but our fight is a spiritual one. He talks about taking up the full armor of God, right? He talks about putting on the breastplate, the, 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 the belt and the truth and all the gospel and the helmet and, and taking up the, the sword, um, of the Spirit, but a lot of times we stop right there, right? We don't go any further because we like that image. More than likely, when, when Paul was writing this, he was actually in prison um, during the time when he was waiting to be taken before the emperor, and he was probably chained to a praetorian guard, to a, to a, to a, to a centurion, and he's probably writing this letter you know, down, um, and he's looking at this, this, this soldier that's right next to him. And I've often thought about that, and I'm thinking, well, why would they, uh, you know, a lot of people thought, well, he was in prison, he was chained up again to this, uh, uh, to this centurion, so the centurion wouldn't, or so that, uh, so that Paul couldn't get away. But the reality was is that uh, the centurion was chained to Paul, so the centurion couldn't get away. Can you imagine, can you imagine being chained to Paul for an eight-hour shift, and you're not a Christian? Oh my goodness. Talking about, uh, talking about some serious opportunities for evangelism, I mean, that is just phenomenal to have uh, one of the greatest, most um, uh, prolific pro um, um, apostles chained to an individual 8 to 12 hours a day, um, a day in and day out. That is just phenomenal to think about. Um, but that being said, 
um, the Bible says that we get the other side of this, right? What I like to call the other side of prayer. And that is that opportunity to, in, to affect heavenly things. It says that after you take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and then it goes right into verse 18. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Pray for the saints. Pray on my behalf that the utterance may be given to me, that I may open the mouth and may known with the boldness of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. He's saying pray. Pray for me. Pray for each other. Pray, pray, pray. The other side of prayer. We don't have the opportunity to fight this battle with a sword. Those of you who know me, you know that I'm an active fencer um, and I'm a sword fighter. I'm a competitive fencer although I haven't competed in a few years. And I like sword fighting. It's something I've enjoyed most of my adult life. I like the idea, the concept, everything about it. And I would like nothing more than to take the sword that God has given me, the Word of God, and start carving into the enemy. Because I like that idea of action. Most men do. We like the action, we like the idea of doing something. Paul is saying that once you have that sword, your first and only job with that sword is to fall on your face and pray. Pray. We need to be just like Daniel. When Daniel encountered situations in his life and scenarios and, and, and concepts that he didn't understand or would made him nervous, he always brought it before the Lord. We need to pray. Obviously, prayer is one of the most important things that we can do. Prayer is our weapon. It's how we fight the battle. I can tell you as somebody who is, and I'm coming to the end of the sermon now, I can tell you as somebody who has struggled with um, depression, somebody that has struggled with sadness, loneliness, somebody who has been homeless, someone who has been dead broke with no prospects, no jobs, someone who has struggled to understand the basics, even the smallest part of Scripture, someone who has tried to make an understanding of why God does what he does or allows the evil to happen in the world. I don't have all those answers. I wish I did. But I can tell you this, that every time that I have struggled, every time that I have felt depression creep in, every time that I have felt the, uh, the, the heavy hand of my enemy pressing down on me, I have sought the Lord in prayer. And it has given me the strength to fight. God has called us to fight. And we fight best on our knees. A praying church is an unstoppable church. A praying church makes the enemy's knees shake and quiver. A praying church changes the course of nations. A praying church is something we don't have much of anymore. I would encourage you this week. Get a little note card. Put it in your pocket. 
And every time, for one week, just track it for one week, every time that you pray, put the date and the start and stop time. That's it. Just look at your watch, look at the time, write it down. And at the end of the week, look at that again. If you are unashamed, then you're where God wants you. You are a prayer warrior. You are fighting the fight. If you look at the card and the times, and you are ashamed and embarrassed, and you don't ever want anyone to know, and you've got a long way to go before you can even get into the fight. If you're struggling, if you feel the enemy pressing down upon you, if you feel like the forces of the darkness are, are surrounding you, you are able to fight, not because of anything you've done, but because of what he's done in you. Remember the scripture, greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. Philippians says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Just as Daniel was strengthened by the touch of that angel that was sent on a message of, to Daniel from God, we know that God will strengthen us. We know the spirit of the living God dwells within us. We know that Jesus says that we have authority on this earth to bind and to loose. And we can do that in spiritual and heavenly places. He says, what you bind here on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose here on earth will be loosed in heaven. We need to be careful what we bind and be careful what we loose. I know that, that it leaves a lot open there and you may have some questions about that. And I would encourage you at some later date to come see me and talk to me about that. I'd love to fill you in on the, on the, on the context there. This book of Daniel, chapter 10, is all about the war that's taken place between, between the forces of darkness and the forces of God. Where do you stand on those battle lines? Because there are no, uh, there are no conscientious objectors in this battle. You're either for him or against him. You're either with God and fighting the battle, or you're not with him. And you're with the enemy. You say, well, I'm a Christian. Just because I don't pray that much doesn't mean I'm, I'm for the enemy. You may think you're a Christian, but I'm here to tell you, if you're not avid, an avid prayer warrior, then either you are an incredibly weak, milk-fed Christian that's still in the baby mode, or you're not a Christian. And that may be hard to say. You say, well, pastor, how dare you say I'm not a Christian? I've been attending church for, for 85 years. I don't care how long you've been in a church. I don't care how long you've maintained your membership. I don't care if your mom and daddy had you baptized a baby. I was baptized a baby too. Didn't mean I was saved. The reality is, Scripture tells us, then that final day when many will come to me, Jesus said, and they'll say, Lord, Lord, hey, let me into heaven. I'm your man. I'm your lady. And Jesus can turn and say, hey, I don't know you. Depart from me, you wicked servant. Some will say, but I've done great things in your name. I've done miracles. I've done this. I've done that. I have been, I've been your greatest advocate, your greatest servant. He's going to say, I'm sorry. I never knew you. Depart from me. He said, cast you into hell. You say, Pastor, how do we know? How do we know? How do we know? I'll tell you how we know. We know because we spend time with Jesus in prayer. The Bible says he knows his own, but you know something? We know his voice too. Right? 
we know his voice too. You know you are a child of the king when you can go before the king and say, Hey, Dad, I need your help. And he sends it. Because an active prayer life means that you have an active opportunity to actively see the hand of God being active in your life. And if you don't know if you're a Christian, then I would say this, pray until something happens. And if nothing happens, that's something to tell you too. Because I've found in my life that, that, that when I pray, and I pray diligently, and I pray often, and I pray earnestly, He moves. And I can give you story after story, but I'm not going to do that because our time is running short. The Bible says the fervent and effectual prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. So church, where are we at this week? We've had three or four sermons about prayer. At what point do you think we should start praying? If you're there now this morning, either online or, or here in the audience, and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and you know that you don't know Him, we have an opportunity. I encourage you before you leave here today or before you uh, let the sun set after you're watching us online, that you will reach out to someone that you know is a member of this church. We'll have a time when the altar is open. You're more than welcome to come down front. I know it's a daunting thing and I, I, wouldn't, want, uh, I wouldn't want someone to come down if they don't feel that they're comfortable or led, but I'm going to tell you this, that eventually God's going to stop calling you, so you better answer if you keep sending him to voicemail, eventually he stops calling. I just pray today is not the final day that he calls you. So if you don't know him, I encourage you to come. If you do know him, my command and charge to you today is go pray. Pray as often as you can this week. Let's go ahead and go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we love you and we thank you. Lord, I know that we've talked quite a bit about Daniel and spiritual forces and Maybe a little scary, maybe a little frightening, but Father, we know that you are mighty and powerful. You are truly the greater, uh, greater than anything that the enemy can throw at us. Father, we know that if we're armored up, we're able to withstand the the, the wire, the, the the darts of the, en- of the evil one. Father, we just ask that you give us the strength and courage to be your hands and feet in this community, to be the servants you've asked us to be. Father, I ask that you give us more of a desire to fall on our face and pray for you and pray to you and pray on behalf of our of our people our community, our nation, our world. Father, I ask that you give us the strength and courage to be to be the what you be your to be your light in this present dark age. Father, I pray if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, you won't let them leave here today without getting their heart right. For the rest of us, Father, I ask that you'll just drive us to our knees. Give us more and more reasons to pray that we might have more of an opportunity to see your hand move, not just in our lives, but in the lives of those people we care about and that are around us, that we might give you greater glory and honor in all that we do and say. Father, we turn the rest of this week into your hands. We thank you for what you've done. In your most precious son's name we pray. Amen. Go this week before the Lord in prayer, in supplications, in all things. Let's have our closing song, The Altar is Open.